You can always count on those guys in the booth. I don't think that was question number one. That's question number one. Where was the tabern, the tent and the Ark of the Covenant? Where was it? What's the name of that place? Shiloh. It was in Shiloh. Uh, anybody recall about how long it was there? Talking about 369 years. You can read about uh, the ark being placed there in the 18th chapter of Joshua. That's where they set it up and it stayed there for over three centuries. Eli's sons, by the way, names? Hophni and Phinehas. There you go. Not to be confused with Nadab and Abihu who were the two sons of Aaron, two sons of Aaron back in Leviticus who were offering strange fire before the Lord. What message did God give Samuel about Eli's boys? Do you remember? Yes, going to be judged, and they will die the same day. That was the message. You heard what Larry said, but said evidently Samuel had had seen Levi or Eli's uh, child raising technique and, and copied that because his boys turned out about the same. And who knows about that? There's no real commentary on it, but it is interesting. Sometimes we see a pattern and. Even if we don't want to, we'll follow that pattern because that's a pattern that's been set for us. But it's interesting to observe. What significant statement is made as chapter 3 concludes? Not only as chapter 3 concludes, but as chapter 4 begins. What does it say? Start with me in chapter three nineteen. Samuel grew... The Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Samuel is established as a prophet And there we have it. We've got it right here as we start chapter 4. So let's go into chapter 4. Let's do a little bit of reading. The first one's really short, chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Who wants a short reading this morning? Uh, Larry? Larry's got the short one. Rich, saw your hand. You want to take 10 to 18? All right. That's chapter 4, 10 to... You might notice we're skipping a little bit. We'll we'll, we'll do that from time to time. And then chapter 5, 1 to 5, who wants that? See another hand back there? Okay, there's a hand, Corey. And then 5, 6 to 12. Somebody else. One more reader is all we need. Oh, Janie. Larry's pointing at Janie. (laughs) Get get Janie. 
Give it to Mikey. He hates everything. You remember that commercial? The commercials I remember date me, I know. but uh. All right. Let's read. The Philistines drew up in battle away to meet Israel. When the battle split, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come up among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the children and the two sons of Eli, Hatnai and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. 10 to 18. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 88 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward besides the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was old and heavy, thus he judged Israel forty years. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashton to this day. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how they looked, they said, 
The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dag and our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great time as he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ephraim, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ephraim, the people of Ephraim cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who, the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. All right. Did you have to stifle a giggle in any of that? What was the purpose of the ark? Bud? Okay. To, to indicate that God is with them. What was on top of the ark? The mercy seat. Why in the world was it called the mercy seat? Okay. Had those two angels, the two cherubim, their wings were outstretched and coming together over the top of the, the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was on top of the ark. It was like the lid. And there's a distinction made between the ark itself and the mercy seat. What was inside the ark? Copy of the Ten Commandments? Not a Xerox copy. Jar of manna? Aaron's rod that budded, that, that's all history for the Israelites. These are things they should know about, they should recall. They should know the purpose of the ark. They should know the limitations of their freedoms with the ark, if that's a good way to say that. Does anything strike you as odd in this, well, the whole thing's odd, but what did you wonder about? Anything in particular when they moved it? Okay, they, they didn't inquire of God. What else? Anything else? Okay. All right. It was only supposed to be carried by the Levites. Only supposed to be carried with the, the, the poles that went with it. There were four rings on the one on each corner of, of the box. I'll call it a box so we have an idea what it looks like. And those rings were made of a, a gold, overlaid with gold. The rods were made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And those rods were to be put through those rings. And by the way, what else is on the ark? If it's going to be moved. All of the coverings have to be on the ark. This, this is a special piece of furniture. So they, they cover it all up. They slide those gold-covered poles through the rings. The priests 
The Levites would bear the ark with those poles on their shoulders. Nobody would touch the ark at any time. And that's how it was supposed to be transported when it was supposed to be transported for God's purposes. But this is completely different. And it's interesting to me that nobody died in the process. What's going to happen later on when David wants to move the ark? Remember that guy? Uzzah? Uzzah will reach out to touch the ark because it's not being moved properly, as Steve mentioned. And when Uzzah touches it, God kills him. But, but that's not what happens here. And I'm not sure why. Perhaps the Levites did move it as they were supposed to. But there's another thing to consider. If you look at Leviticus chapter 16, by the way, this is a chapter worth noting Leviticus 16 is all about Yom Kippur. What is Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement. And this is what we read in Leviticus 16 about the ark. Verse 1, Leviticus 16. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. That was back in chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark. Or what? Or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, how did those guys in 1 Samuel get the ark? Well, they had to go into the most holy place. And God did not strike them dead for whatever reason. I, I don't know. Paul? present the idea that it was God's will because he was pretending to send a message to his people. And he was withdrawing, in a sense, his approval or his presence from them because of that's basically the only conclusion I can come to, a lesson for the Israelites and a lesson for who else? For the Philistines and everybody that the Philistines would tell about this situation, this incident, this occurrence. It's very interesting to me that they are able to go in there, take the ark, take it all the way out onto the battlefield, and then who gets it on the battlefield? The Philistines. And nobody dies from the Philistines as a direct result of handling or touching the ark. Who knows how they moved it? doesn't say. We don't have those details. Right? We don't want to do Every time they took it someplace, that place was fraught with trouble. What particular God was impacted by this? Dagon. What happened to him? Yeah. yeah. Now why would they take the ark and put it in his place, put it in Dagon's place? It doesn't say, but likely they considered the ark a spoil of war, and it's as if they were taking it. Now it doesn't, doesn't say this in the text. It says in chapter 5, verse 2, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it in the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. doesn't say why. 
But typically, that's what would be done. You've got a god you worship, and so, hey, we whooped our enemies. Let's take this most important artifact from our enemies and take it to our gods and put it in there as if it were an offering. That's what I'm thinking they were doing. And then they get up the next morning, and their god is on his face. And the next morning they get up, and their god's not only on his face, but what? His head's broke off. His hands are broke off. Because what is their god? He's stone. He's a piece of carved out stone. Jeremiah will be a prophet who later on will will mock this kind of behavior. He'll say, well, here's a man. And the reason Jeremiah does it is because this is what the Israelites were doing, even though they knew the true and living God. But he said, you'll go out into the woods and you'll cut down a tree and you'll take some of that tree and you'll cut it into firewood and you'll break some bread over the fire that you use with that wood. You'll take the rest of that wood and you'll carve it into an idol and bow down and worship it. Now he doesn't ask the question, but I would ask the question, how dumb is that? And that's what we've got here. And this is human nature. I think about the Israelites. What did the Israelites do as soon as they got out of Egypt? They made a golden calf. You ever been around a calf? Slobbering, silly things. Now, they're as cute as they can be. You've got to love them. But, hey, I see you at McDonald's kind of a thing. It's, that, that's, and they're going to say, this is our God. And here is Dagon, their God, image of a man, falls on his face, and he's broken. And what particular thing does it say about how they change their behavior after this? They wouldn't step on the threshold because when Dagon fell, the threshold is where his head was broken off. Oh, man, don't step on the threshold out of honor for our God who fell over twice in the presence of this box that we brought back from the Israelites. Maybe there's something to this box. By the way, I got tumors. Any rest of you guys got tumors? <laughs> they just kind of came up overnight. Our buddy's lined up down in urgent care. Doctor says, get that ark out of here. And so what do they do? Larry told us. They take it from town to town to town. And this is why I'm in agreement with what Paul was talking about. It's as if God had had a tailor-made lesson, not only for Israel and the Philistines, but everybody, even us, who today would read about this, don't mess with God. Just don't do it. Reverence and awe. Honor. Obedience. All of that comes together in this. And if we, if we could ever get in our minds, in as much as our minds are limited to conceive, the reality of God Almighty, it would blow us away. But in this world, with our five senses that are continually bombarded with the presence of this world and all things in it, it's difficult to to live on such a a high plane. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of effort. And obviously the Israelites had, had left out on that because they did not say, do not take the ark. Don't you dare go into the Holy of Holies. You'll die if you go in there. What do you mean taking it out on the battlefield amongst the Philistines? <clears throat> Once again, what was on top of the ark? The mercy seat. 
this was not a lucky charm to, to carry about where you needed good luck. This was the place where God would meet man, and, and the primary purpose was forgiveness. This is where I'm going to meet with you, and I'm going to forgive your sins. Your high priest will come in here on the day of atonement. I will forgive your sins. The mercy seat is what it's called. Steve? Slight precedence for what they did. Uh, when you think about uh, Jericho and the ark, and here and the ark. So my question is, uh, not a question, it should be obvious, but what, what's the difference between the ark going around Jericho and the ark going into battle against the Philistine? What was the difference that is a huge difference? Good question, and what would be the answer? It came from God. God's the one who said, all right, here's what I want you to do this time. You remember Moses and getting water from a rock? What did God tell Moses to do to get water out of a rock the first time? Actually, the first time he said, you strike the rock with your rod. And so Moses wasn't angry, wasn't upset. He just did what God said, struck the rock. The next time, what does God tell Moses to do? Speak to it. What does Moses do? He strikes it. And what does God say to Moses based on that? You're not going into the promise. What? You, this little, little infraction? But what did God say to Moses based on him striking the rock the second time when he was told to speak to it? That you have not honored me as holy before the people. That was the deal. That was the deal. Once again, we're back to this idea of who God is as opposed to who I am. I need to listen to his every word. It's, it's kind of like, I don't know if any of you remember this when you started in, if, if you've had some higher education. After the first couple of weeks of higher education, what do you think? Man, I know everything now. I'm going to go back home and straighten my parents out. That, that's the way we get sometimes. Once we start learning something, oh, I didn't know that before. Now I'm smart. No, you're not smart. You've learned just enough to be dangerous. Why do we say that? Everybody knows that saying because it's so true. So the, the assumption that we know enough to move on our own is a dangerous assumption. And that's the problem that the Israelites had. They weren't going to God to say, Lord, hey, we've been defeated here today. What should we do? What happened when Israel went up against the mighty city of Jericho? The walls did what? They fell down. What happened when they went up the, against the piddly little city of Ai? They got defeated. Why? What's the difference? They, they went to God about Jericho and God told them, and they didn't go to God about Ai. Oh, hey, what do you, oh, hey some of you guys, you guys just go on up there tomorrow and take it. Didn't ask God anything. It's like, wait a minute, who brought you into this promised land? Don't get into the habit of moving on your own. 
Now, this is ancient history. Is there any application for us today? Paul? Maybe an obvious thing to highlight, but I think just like characters in the Bible for God, we also forget that the source of morality is God. So whatever he says is automatically the right thing to do. And and we get sideways when we start trying to figure out what we think is the right thing to do and, and making decisions based on that. Right. And sometimes it's not even what we think or what we want to do. It's what we are afraid to think because of the world. Well, I I don't know if I can say what the Bible says and hold to what the Bible says because the world is really pressing hard in the other direction. And I don't want to, I don't want to look stupid to my friends and my co-workers or whoever else by sticking to this old worn out book. Yes. Paul mentioned how many times that God prevented him from doing someplace. And he would make the comment that if the Lord wills, he will be going places. And so at the time of Paul, he was still holding to this idea of doing as the Lord, you know, directed him. Right. And a good example, I don't know if you heard what Bob said, but, but Paul was following along with this, this kind of logic and reasoning. I think it's Acts 16. Man, Marty, we're going all the way to the New Testament now. Yeah, here we go. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Now, what did you just notice? There was the Holy Spirit at work, and there was the Spirit of Jesus at work. When Paul writes about the Israelites going through the 40 years, who did he say they were following when he wrote to the church at Corinth? He said they, they drank from the rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's always been Christ. It will always be Christ. The Spirit of God, the Son of God, the Father himself. But then it says this. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding what? That God had called us. There is such a great lesson in all of this for me, for you, for the whole world, that as we proceed through life, every single day, we ought to be calling on God. The the phrase we've heard, we don't hear it so much here, but I used to hear it all the time growing up. Guide, guard, and direct. Guide, guard, and direct. Guide, guard, and direct. Where'd that come from? What came from this? Guide, and then guard, and then direct, which is almost the same thing as guide. We need God's guidance. That's why that prayer was prayed. That's why it's still prayed today. You and I still need his guidance. And it, it, sometimes we get fooled because we've got enough money, 
You probably don't think you got enough money, but you you probably got enough money. You got a house to live in. Your your job might seem pretty secure. Your family's not terribly sick. Everything's going fairly well, and so okay, you don't need to call on the Lord today. Everything's going pretty well. What would you say to that conclusion? Oh man, faulty assumption. You you better be. It's, it's not the same thing. And I'm, I'm not into sports. <clears throat> but if you're only a fan when your team's winning, you're not a fan. You've got to be a fan when your team is losing. And if you're only talking to God when things are not going very well, Are you really a disciple of his? Now, I'm not trying to castigate or anything. I'm just asking questions that I need to ask myself. Because it it happens to all of us, I think. We just get complacent. Oh, things are going pretty well. Don't need God today. I'll talk to him. Oh, if something bad happens, oh, man, we need to pray about that. Why don't we pray when things are going great? Thank you, Lord. I'm walking around on two legs today. I can still see. I can still speak to the consternation of other people, but I can still talk. All the blessings we have, I've eaten good today. I've got air to breathe, and my lungs work so I can breathe it. I'm not in too much pain. Nobody that I know of really hates me in this county. I mean, you just stop and think. There's a song, you know, count your many blessings. That's a great song. And that's what we should do every day. So the Israelites had a problem because I, they weren't in the relationship with God that they needed to be. And in my mind, this is why God's allowing these things to happen. These guys need to see something. And so all this takes place. And, and that's an assumption on my part. I don't know what God's purpose is. He hasn't told me. But we read this and we see what the conclusion is, not only of the Israelites, but what's the conclusion of the Philistines. This is some powerful stuff. Now, now they had said that. If you go back to the part we skipped, there in chapter 4. When the Israelites brought the Ark of the Covenant in, they shouted with a great shout, so the earth resounded. This is chapter 4, verse 6. When the Philistines heard the noise of that shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid. But they said, God's come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who did what? Did they know about what happened in Egypt? Yes, they knew what happened in Egypt. That's why they were afraid. But then they say in verse 9, Take courage and be men, Philistines, or you'll become slaves to the Hebrews as they've been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And if you go back in the time of the judges, you'll read about how Israel became slaves to the Philistines. They were enslaved by them until God would bring the judge and, and deliver them. So they haven't learned much. And we still have much to learn, I think. Observations, questions, comments? All right, Steve. Uh, to me, uh, 
both the Israelites and the Philistines uh, did the same thing. The, the Israelites tried to manipulate God by taking the ark into battle. God would have to help them. The Philistines did the same thing. They captured the ark, took it into their possession, their uh, house of God, and now they could control the Israelite God, manipulate him because they had conquered, and they could manipulate that. And so I think uh, it's a lesson for us today. Do we try to manipulate manipulate God uh, by you know the name we wear or our worship service or anything like that? And are there ways that we try to manipulate God? Uh, because both of them did. Manipulating God. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? it? It ought to scare us if we are ever able to manipulate God. Yes? When God, when the ark of God was with the Israelites, life was good. Okay. When we have God in our lives, our lives will be good. Same thing true today. His people are his people. Right. The ark represented the presence of God. But in a... Well, what I'm getting at is how many Israelites actually had God in their heart? That's always been God's desire is to have his <clears throat> to have his law written in our hearts. We're, we're coming back to the Apostle Paul again, but he would say this to the church at Corinth, said, you are my epistle. You are my letter. He's writing a letter to them, but he's saying that you guys are my letter and that this spiritual word is written on your hearts. What did David say? He said, thy word I have hidden in my heart. Why? That I might not sin. Bible study is not a religious practice. Bible study is feeding your soul. Bible study is drawing closer to God. James wrote, draw near to God and what's going to happen? He will draw near to you. Don't you know the Israelites wish that God had drawn near to them? Were they trying to draw near to God or were they trying to do what Steve was talking about, manipulate God? The huge difference, one's totally respectful, one's totally disrespectful. You know, throughout their history, God had, had authorized them to use the ark during battles to show that he was with them and they, the outcome was favorable right. to the Israelites when he authorized the ark with them. So they didn't make a distinction of taking the ark in the battle with or without his approval. Exactly. So, you know, I, I think they the Jordan River. Are not the lessons you need to use in the present. 
Unless you're, you're going, you know what? God gave us a great victory at Jericho and we carried the ark out there. I wonder if he'd like for us to carry. Let's ask God if he would like us to carry the ark out. All it is, all it is, is a simple respect for God, submission to God, to his authority, to his power, to his might. It's giving him honor and glory every step of the way. It's when we fail to do that that we, we get messed up, we get sidetracked. How'd they get across the Jordan River? Ark of the Covenant. The priests had the ark. They went into the water. When their feet hit the water, everything changed. Why didn't they do that crossing the Red Sea? They didn't have the ark. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Where was the ark manufactured by the Israelites? While they were in the wilderness. God said, I'm, I'm going to be with you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a tabernacle. Main piece of furniture in that tabernacle is going to be this ark. Main thing about the ark is it's got mercy seat on top of it. That's where I'm going to come to you and forgive your sin. I'm going to give you a high priest. You're going to make sacrifices and offerings through that high priest. Your sin will be forgiven. What did Isaiah say about sin a thousand years later? Almost 800 years later? He said, our sin has separated between us and God. That's, that's, it's always been that. That was the issue in the garden when, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. Now there's a separation. We've got to fix this somehow. So Eve, uh, your pain's going to be increased in childbearing, but you're going to have a son, your seed. He's going to bruise the head of Satan. Satan will only bruise his heel, but he will bruise Satan. Genesis 3.15, God is saying, all right, we're going to have to, Resolve some sin here. What's happening in the first part of chapter 4 of Genesis? What's Cain or what's Abel doing? He's making a sacrifice. You know, the Chinese symbol for righteousness is a man with a sheep and a knife. Isn't that interesting? The Chinese, you go do a little research on the Chinese characters and, and their symbol. At least one of them. I know about this one. The Chinese character that represents righteousness shows a man with a knife and a sheep. Where did that idea come from? If not Genesis chapter 4. And Abel offering from his flock. And God being pleased with that offering. By the way, what did Cain offer? He offered from the fruits of the field. What's wrong with the fruits of the field? Man, I love me some squash with some garlic and onions. That's good stuff. Throw a can of tomatoes in there. Mm-mm. Don't forget the cheese. Oh, man, after my own heart. And if you've got it, crumble up some bacon and put in there. I'm talking, I can't even. Oh, it's time to worship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the fruit of the field. Was that what God asked for? Evidently not, because Abel offered by faith, according to Hebrews chapter 11. And the only way to offer by faith is for God to have you, given you some instruction. Faith comes by hearing, and that by the word of God. So Abel had a word, and he followed that word. The Israelites had a word. They did not follow that word with regard to the ark. The Philistines were ignorant 
of everything except some of the history connected with that ark. And they did not read that history well. They did not say, you know what? The God of the Israelites has done these things for them. Maybe that is the real, true, and living God. Our God is made out of a rock. We carved him ourselves, and he's in that temple over there we built for him. Maybe our God is not as good as their God. Let's go talk to these Israelites about their God and see if we can get some information about him because he's doing things that our God has never done. Did the Philistines ever think like that? Oh, there, there might have been one or two. But we don't know about those guys. Oh, Testament. You don't see you don't see other nations trying to emulate you only see Israel trying to emulate the other nations. And that's exactly what we're going to come into in the eighth chapter is Israel's rejection of God. And it's Boy, it's just just good stuff. Because what will Samuel think when Israel rejects God? Samuel will think they've rejected him. And God says, no, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. It's always, you've got to look at the bigger picture. And so often in life, we think everything that happens in life is about me. It's about you. It's about us. Very seldom is it really about us. It's always about something else almost all the time. Just pay attention. Follow the Lord. Ask him all the time. Seek his guidance. Well, that's our class for this morning. Lord bless you. You're dismissed.